Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Sarah Morath about how to write a scholarly article. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Professor Sarah Morath, Clinical Associate Professor and Director of Legal Skills and Strategies. We're talking about writing a scholarly article. This is different than writing a traditional open memo. It's writing an article that might appear in a law review, that might appear in some kind of scholarly piece. And it is essential to master this skill. It's the reason I got my job at Pace. It's because I wrote my first article and it was published. This is really an informative discussion of helping you as 2Ls and 3Ls make the transition from writing that kind of persuasive piece to a scholarly piece. Heads up, the biggest problem students have is understanding that when you make your scholarly argument, it's gotta be a legal argument. It can't be like what you wrote when you were in law school. And one heads up, the most important thing, and you'll hear us discuss this, is that when you're writing a scholarly article, you've gotta have a legal hook. It can't be like the traditional thesis you write as a senior in college. It's gotta be something that makes a legal so what argument. We'll talk more about that and other important aspects of writing a scholarly piece in this week's edition of Law to Fact. Once again, I want to remind you, we are free, and all that we ask is that you show us some love. Like us on Twitter, on Instagram, send us some tweets, tell us what you want to hear, and also if you could subscribe to us on any of the platforms on which you listen to us. It makes a difference. It keeps us moving forward. We've had some great recommendations. We've got some new professors coming on as per student requests. Just let us know what you want to talk about. And by the way, it doesn't have to be about a topic that you study in law. It could be about something important to you as a law student, anything important to you. If you're listening to us, chances are you are planning to take the bar exam. I'm offering you $100 off the Kaplan Bar Prep program. Go to www.captest.com and click on Bar. Enter code Leslie100 at checkout and you'll receive $100 off. Here's my discussion with Sarah Morath. All right, well, welcome. I'm so excited to speak with you, and I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to talk about scholarship for upper-level students. We spend so much time talking about first-year memos and, and appellate advocacy, and this is really a chance for us to talk about kind of that upper-level writing requirement, the senior seminar type of thing. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you want to kind of frame the discussion a little bit. So I think that students sometimes experience a little bit of anxiety when they're tasked with writing a paper that might be 10,000 words or so. And they might not have had um, that experience in their undergraduate uh, careers, or if they did have that experience, it's been a long time ago. So I like to, as a professor, of legal research and writing, I talk a lot about with my students some of the things that they already know from their writing from memos and appellate briefs. And then I also talk about some of the differences with my students um, when they write a scholarly article. Just sort of get them prepped, get them prepared, um, relieve some of the anxiety that they might be anticipating that will happen with this experience, and also share with them what a rewarding and enlightening experience they're about to have as they embark on their endeavor of, of writing something that they can uh, sort of craft as their own and share with the public maybe eventually. I agree. Actually, you know, it's funny because I always tell my students that the only reason I got my job was because I wrote a senior, you know, I call it senior seminar, it's not that, but a 3L paper around my 3L year and I got it published and I think that that kind of 
wowed the powers that be when I went to um, work at Pace in the beginning, way back when, when I yeah. started as a legal writing person. So, so, all right, so let's talk first. What's the difference between writing, other than length, what's the difference between writing a um, scholarly piece, scholarly article, we'll call it, from, say, your traditional memo? I think there are a couple of differences. The most, um, maybe biggest differences are the audience. So when you're writing a scholarly article, you're usually writing for um, the public, or you might be writing for your professor, or you're writing for, if you're on law review, you might be writing for another um, student. But your audience is not typically your supervising attorney, like when you're writing the 1L memo, or the court when you're writing your brief. So your audience is different, and I think students need to recognize that. The topic and thesis, the idea of coming up with a topic for your paper and creating a thesis that you're going to be arguing throughout the paper is different than the objective memo or the persuasive brief that 1L students are used to. And again, sort of like um, thinking about the paper as a whole, I think coming up with the topic and thesis can also be sort of an anxiety-producing <laughs> experience for the students um, because they think they have nothing original to share and they just haven't realized that they do yet. Uh, so kind of that, what am I going to argue, what am I going to say about this topic is different from a memo or a brief. The authority that a student might use is also different. So you're used to using primarily case law and maybe statutory law when you're writing a memo or writing an appellate brief. And when you're writing a scholarly article, you can use all sorts of authority in addition to case law and uh, statutory law. You might be using a bunch of different secondary sources, including law reviews. You might be using things from the popular press. You might be using white papers or policy papers that have been published. So the materials that you're going to be pulling from um, to include in your scholarly paper are going to be different as well. Footnotes. That's a huge oh, difference. Yeah, footnotes, huge. <laughs> and and part of the blue book, right? You're using a different yes. part of the blue book. You're using a totally different part of the blue book, and students need sometimes to be told everything from how to insert a footnote. They might not sort of know how to use that function on a Word software, or um, but also the formatting as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a difference as well. The length you noted and sort of the structure is you're kind of using a, a CREAC or a IRAC kind of paradigm, but it's much more flexible than if you were writing a memo or a brief. Yeah. It's actually, I do think it is that, I say IRAC, so we'll say that, although yeah. you should put your conclusion first, but the thing is your kind of issue is the problem, yep. and then the rule to me is the history section where you lay out all of the law that you're going to use, and mm -hmm. then you're going to apply that to your analysis and then conclusion. It's, but it's expanded. It is expanded, and I think of that, um, Leslie, what you just mentioned, I think of that as like the big-scale organization, large-scale mm -hmm. organization of the whole paper, and then I think within your argument section, you might have smaller IRACs or CREACs if you have subparts within that A section. So yes, but I agree with you. There's so sort of pointing out to students that there are these formats that and these conventions that you will see in all scholarly writing, and don't worry, there's a template, a, a sort of loose template for you to use, but there's something that you can start from to sort of organize your thought and organize your paper. 
Great. All right. So let's go back first to talk about the thesis, because one of the problems that I've seen, and maybe you can speak to this, is that students, and you pointed this out, that students don't really know what to talk about. I mean, they know when they say, here's your client, here's what you have to do, but they don't know how to craft a thesis and what goes hand in hand of that is I find too many times students are kind of writing more of a treatise versus an analytical piece or more of kind of a social studies paper. So how do yeah. you help students frame that? That's definitely true. I call it the book report. So I think one of the biggest challenges is, ha is having students come up with um, a topic that's thesis worthy, something that they can sort of devote uh, 10,000 words to and the, in the span of a semester kind of create something that says something. So I tell students that they have to take advantage of all of the time that they're given to think about what it is that they want to write about, right? So this is not something that I can, I, the thesis is not going to pop into your head um, two weeks before your paper is due. So they need to be thinking about this from the beginning, from before even the first class. And as they research their topic, their thesis will become clearer. So it's kind of this recursive process. Well, I think I want to write about this topic. I don't know what I want to say about that topic. You start to research that topic, and then you become a little more enlightened into what some of the issues are. But their, their paper needs to say something. So I think of that kind of, this should happen because X, Y, and Z. So this should because kind of format for the thesis works really well. So we should change this law because more children will have services if we right. do that or something right. like that. Right. So this should happen because X, Y, and Z. So I think oftentimes students should pick a topic that they're interested in, mm -hmm. that they maybe have some background in, or think about maybe something that they came across over the summer that was really kind of new and interesting to them. Um, maybe think about a, a case that they read in class or a speaker that they've seen at law school who sort of made them think a little bit uh, more about an issue. But it definitely has to be something that's of interest to them, maybe something they've read in the news or they've heard on the radio or they've seen in a tweet or something and, right. and that, that, that gets them thinking about the topic. Because if it's not of interest to them, they're going to have a lot, hard time spending the whole semester staying motivated to write about the topic. That's an um, excellent point. But the other, the point, the first point you make is brilliant. This should be cause. Because, for instance, let's say someone wants to talk about the Child Services Protection Act. The job of a scholar in scholarly writing is not to write about the Children's yep. Services Protection Act. It's to say the Children's Services Protection Act should be upheld because it's constitutional. Or the Children's Services Protection Act doesn't go far enough because of these consequences. Something like that. Yes, definitely. So why should your reader care about what it is that you're writing about, yeah. right? The why. So, yeah. Why? The why. Yeah. So what's happening and why Why should we care about that? Right? Right. You heard this in the news, that's what's happening, but why, why should we be interested in that? Yeah, so definitely I think that um, it takes a lot of time to student, for students to come to that thesis, but I, off, I say, you know, you should be able to articulate your thesis in a sentence or two or three sentences, and it can, it can sort of shift and change as you conduct more research, and also to share it with your professor, because your professor will be able to kind of help you identify whether you've come up with a thesis that's going to 
sustain you through the whole semester or is going to offer you enough material to write about for the semester. Perfect. That makes total sense. Let's talk now about authority because another thing I see is students writing an entire paper with their sites <laughs> coming from the computer or the internet. Oh, great topic <laughs> because so much of research is conducted online these days. So I always uh, provide a session kind of going through the different kinds of authority that students should be consulting. And I encourage them to start with secondary sources that they can find on Westlar Alexis. And it can be uh, law review articles on the topic, or it can be um, treatises on the topic, something else. That's sort of that legal authority, right? It has that citation to case law and citation to statutory law. I do think in terms of internet sources, I advise students to, if they're going to pull a newspaper article or a journal article that they're using, um, something that's kind of a well-recognized and, and sort of reputable source, a print, you know, print magazine. It could be a local magazine if you're writing about a local issue, but you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, some a national press tends to be pretty recognized as being authoritative sources. Uh, what things that I tell them to be wary of are blogs, uh, personal websites, wiki sites, mm -hmm. and if they find data or a statistic on an advocacy site. I don't tell them to shy away from advocacy sites, but they should be statistics that are verifiable. There should be a link or there should be a footnote with a citation to that information and you should be able to verify what's being said on an advocacy site or a site that might be sort of clearly advancing a particular viewpoint. I also tell students it's fine to include that kind of authority in your article, but you need to let the reader know that this is coming from an advocacy. So I might, I might say advocacy organizations are concerned with this law because X, Y, and Z. Or um, industry representatives are uh, fearful that Congress is overstepping its authority because X, Y, and Z. So it's okay to use these advocacy viewpoints, but you need to let the re reader know that that's who's saying this. It's not just Congress is overreaching. It's, you know, th this is who thinks Congress is overreaching. Right. So, and also to be wary of kind of saying something like, many organizations think this, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, sort of putting one organization into all organizations or one industry group into all industry groups. Um, and so, you know, identify that group as being a group that thinks this. Or if it, it really is the sentiment of many organizations, you can say that and have a citation that has a reference to uh, more than one um, organization's website. But you do, you want, you want kind of like variety. <laughs> variety is the spice of life. I would say even more than variety, you want to make sure there's balance between yep. law and non-law so that even though you're arguing, or arguing a point, a paper that relies solely on advocacy positions, yes, they're going to support your argument, but they're not going to have sway with a judge. And that, at the end of the day, is what's going to make the legal argument. Exactly. Yeah, I like that word balance. Just thinking about, it's almost like checking the lens through which you're Who's writing this? Like, <laughs> thinking about, not just thinking about the audience who you're writing for, but thinking about 
who's writing to you? Who are these people that you're, you're, you know, you're reading their material online and what is their position? And being very um, open-minded and, and open-eyed to the fact that these, these groups might have a particular kind of agenda. And like you said, that's not necessarily going to be persuasive in the end of the day. But I love that you said who's writing it. Who's writing it is a lawyer or a law student. It's yeah. not a senior in college. It's not a think tank. It's a lawyer or a, someone about to be a lawyer. And so it's got to have the legal hook. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's talk about everyone's least favorite part of this, which is <laughs> footnotes. What do you have to say about that? Oh, I've got some tips about footnotes as well. So one thing I would say is that students should start their footnotes early on. And what do I mean by that? I mean, as soon as you write down something into a Word document that you know you need to cite, I would include the footnote and include as much information as you can about that um, source, be it the uh, citation, if it's a case, or the journal that it came from, the page number. Because what will happen is as students write, they cut and paste and they move things around and they can't remember where that piece of information came from. So I say start early and start and 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 do it often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I say you can never oversight. You never want to have a paper and have the professor, after you've turned in a draft, have the professor say to you, you need a footnote here, you need a footnote there, you need a footnote here. And you are, as a student, lost thinking, oh my goodness, I have to go back and look through all of my materials. So... I tell students, I encourage them to oversight. It's better to have your professor say you don't need a footnote there than to have a footnote there and to include as much information as possible early on so that um, worry about the formatting at the end, but you're never um, scratching your head thinking, where did that statistic come from or where did that quote come from? There are different types of footnotes that students need, to, I think, to get comfortable using and the one that I kind of like uh, or the kind of textual footnotes where maybe you have a footnote and you want to provide a little more um, supplemental information about what that authority is, but you don't want to necessarily include it in your article because it might be distracting. And so um, students should feel comfortable saying, like, I want to note this, but I don't really want to note it in the body of my paper because it might be distracting or it's not really directly on point and that they can use a textual footnote there, and, and parentheticals as well. So they, they should <laughs> get to know and love the footnote, or, sorry, the blue book, mm -hmm. and they should feel comfortable exploring the sections on parentheticals and, and thinking creatively about how they can include as much authority as possible, I think. I mean, I think it's I better agree. to have more than less. I totally agree. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this idea that the footnotes are one part of the blue book and the uh, citations that they learn for legal writing in, are in another part of the blue book? Yeah, the, the blue book is an interesting creature because it has the white pages and the blue pages. And the blue pages are what they're going to be focused on for um, purposes of things, practicing attorneys. Practicing attorneys use the blue pages. And the blue pages are the smallest part of the blue book. Most of the blue book is the white pages. And the right. white pages are what you use for scholarly writing. So they're going to be in the white pages most of the time. And there's a couple of differences in terms of citing, you know, case names in terms of when they're going to be italicizing names and, and not 
there's a little bit of difference in typeface when we're talking about statutes and books and periodicals. And so they're going to be in different parts of the blue book than where they were in their 1L year. So they probably were not citing books. They probably were not citing periodicals. They probably were not citing websites when they were writing their memos or writing their briefs. And so they're, you know, be, students, I know they've heard this from their legal writing professors. They should be comfortable using the index and they should find the authority, what kind of authority they're using, be it a website, a book, a periodical in the index. And then they should go to that rule in the white pages and that will provide them with the format. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but you're still, you know, you're still speaking this kind of citation language. So you shouldn't be scared of moving from one part to the other because it's basically the same. It is basically the same. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They might be using, uh, looking at new kinds of authority, like a book or a periodical, but the rules about spacing and abbreviations and all of that is uniform throughout the blue book. So this has been so helpful. I, I just have to say, as I said in the beginning, I loved writing my law school um, scholarly piece. It was about, actually, it's timely now, it was about uh, exit polling in presidential elections. Of course, right before it came to be published, the Congress passed it a law that said you can't print exit polls before election returns are decided, or before polls are closed. So oh, wow. it became moot, but yet it got published anyway, so there you go. So don't, and that's one last thing we should just talk about is don't worry about preemption that much, right? Yeah, I wouldn't worry that much about preemption. I think your professor will always have suggestions for how you can make your topic your own. I think, you know, for example, I had, I can give you two examples. So one is the uh, Pets Act, which requires FEMA to have a rescue plan in place for pets, because what happened during Hurricane Katrina is so many individuals died because they stayed with their pets. So, you know, maybe some student had this great idea about creating a law that requires FEMA to have plans for animals in mm -hmm. place. And they're, you know, like, what am I going to, that's a great idea. Someone's already thought of it. But I think, you know, that was an act, that was something that was, our, that was enacted several years ago. You could evaluate how successful it's been. You could evaluate how the act can be strengthened. Students can evaluate ways in which it can be, you know, improved. Are they not publishing data that would help student, or help the public analyze whether or not this was successful or not? So I think, you know, I wouldn't. I would tell students not to worry about um, whether their topic has been discussed already. That you, you can always come up with an original thing to say about a topic, and your professor will certainly be able to help you do that as well. Yeah, I agree. So this has been awesome. What parting words do you have for our future scholars? I would say take advantage of the opportunity to write. A scholarly paper. I think if you are a person who likes big challenges and likes to set big goals for yourself, this is one of those things that you won't ever be able to do once you're practicing law. You, I don't think you'll have as much time as you have during your law school career to kind of devote and become an expert in um, something that interests you, you, something that you are interested in writing about. If it becomes published, you've, that's something that's forever on your CV and is an accomplishment that you can look back on and say, I had this big goal and I was able to achieve it. I cannot agree more. It's 
just it is great on your resume, but it's also a really good accomplishment that stays with you for yeah, forever. Long, forever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has really been wonderful. I, I'm, I'm so excited that we got to talk about this topic, and I appreciate your knowledgeable insights. It's really been beneficial. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. So that's my discussion for today. Once again, I want to remind you, if you're thinking about taking the bar exam, if you go to www.captast.com and type in code LESLIE100, you get $100 off their bar review program. That's it for today. Have a great day. We'll see you next week on Law of Fact. Music.